Welcome back to the Rock Your Retirement Show. I'm your host, Kathy Klein, and today's guest host is an expert on helping family members stay in their home. Jonna Overson was on the show before, and you can hear her original interview way back on episode 24 when the show was still pretty new. But we're not going to be interviewing her today. We'll be starting our four-part series where we'll discuss a topic that is pretty hot today, and that is intergenerational living. And actually, we've had an expert on this topic come on the show earlier, Lisa Sini, who creates senior living spaces for assisted living communities. And she also has her own intergenerational living situation. You can hear that show by going to your podcast app and searching for episode 110 on the Rocky Retirement Show. Because so many of us are in this situation, Jonna and I will be breaking the subject down into four parts. In the first of four, we'll be discussing the return of multi-generational households and how that affects us. Episode two of four, we'll talk about the benefits of intergenerational families. In the third episode of the series, we'll talk about the challenges of multi-generational living, which of course there are many. And finally, in the fourth of the series, we'll talk about how to have a meaningful and happy multi-generational family life. If you have parents, in-laws, children, or siblings, then you're going to want to stick around for all four parts of this series. But before we start, I wanted to tell you that this episode is brought to you by the Medicare Quick Step-by-Step Guide for Signing Up for Medicare. If you're signing up for Medicare for the very first time, you already know how confusing it can be. This step-by-step guide is absolutely free and will help you make the transition into Medicare. Get it free by going to medicarequick.com slash checklist. And best yet, I'm the founder of Medicare Quick, and I love helping people with their Medicare. So, Jonna, thanks so much for co-hosting today. How are you? I'm doing really well, Kathy. Thanks for having me on. Good. I'm so glad you came back after such a long hiatus. I mean, episode 24 was way, way back, and the show has changed a lot since then. Wonderful. Yeah. So you picked an article for us to uh, talk about, and that's from Karen Sternheimer, and it's at everydaysociologyblog.com, and I'll go ahead and put a link to it in the show notes. One of the things that I found interesting about this article, Jana, was the fact that it's not all elder adults moving in with their kids. <laughs> right? It definitely feels true. <laughs> right. I see a lot of people who have, you know, adult children or nearly adult children. And they're also balancing their adult family members. There's a lot of variety happening right now. I know. And, you know, I, I knew that a lot of the millennials were living with their parents. But what I didn't realize is that middle age parents are moving in with their kids. Yeah. Do you think that has anything to do with like the crash of 2008 and all the stock market things that are going on or have gone on in the past? What what do you think that is? Well, the article is really interesting because it it opened my eyes um, to a couple of things. And the first one was that uh, the idea that you grow up, you go to college, or you get a job, you get married, and you have this beautiful house in the suburbs with two kids is not the way it's always been in the U.S. In fact, 
that's a relatively new phenomenon uh, in the from like the 40s, 50s, and and that era. So what we think of as normal is really, you know, kind of a short blip in our in the American culture history. So there was such a, a boom in the economy during that time. And then with the recession and all the things you just mentioned, the rising house prices, it really does seem like that American dream style from from that era is is shifting a little bit. We're seeing that people are having to be more creative with their family living arrangements. Do you think that's mostly on the two coasts, you know, like New York and California? Or do you think that's the case everywhere? Because you and I live on a coast. And it's really, really expensive where we live to buy a home. Like, I can't even imagine how a 20-something is going to purchase a home here, ever. I mean, it's it's absolutely (laughs) ridiculous, the prices. But do you think that's true, like in Iowa, Ohio, those kind of places? Well, I'm actually from Oklahoma, and I have... A lot of family still back in that space uh, in Texas as well. And um, I know about most multi-generational households firsthand because I live in one. Who do you live with? Tell us who you live with now. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I have a wonderful husband and two younger girls who are preteen and teenage years. So we're getting ready to head into that 20-something space in our home. And then my father, who just recently turned 60, lives with us. So um, that was one of the other things this article said was that the the multi-generational households, you know, with the older adults is not necessarily the 85 plus sector. That right. It it's it's the, the young adult, the young older adults. Middle-aged, basically. Middle-aged, yeah, yeah. It's the 50s to, to 70s that are living with families. So my father is from Texas okay. and he moved to San Diego to be closer with us. So while the coasts are more expensive and do have some of those pressure points that cause people to want to become multi-generational, my father who lived in a great cost of living area decided to make the transition here because he, there's a lot of factors that influence that multi-generational household. Right. It doesn't have to be just financial or just health. Correct. I mean, yeah. I know a lot of people that are moving um, to be closer to their children or closer to their family, but they're not necessarily moving in with somebody. You know, they're 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 moving cross country. Like I have a friend who moved across country to be near her her children and subsequently her grandchildren. Now, um, uh, I'm trying to remember if she had a grandchild when she first moved, but she definitely wanted to be near her kids. I think she had one grandchild at the time, and now she has more. And then, of course, one of her kids moved away. <laughs> no. <laughs> now they're all back. But oh, I just found it to be interesting. She moved all the way, and then she was really mad because her her uh, son moved <laughs> right after she got there. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think a lot of it does have to do with money. You know, when you have the middle-aged people moving in with the kids, it has to do with money, I think, a lot of it. Well, partially. I mean, that's one of the benefits, of course, of having a multi-generational family is sharing some of that financial burden. But there's so many other factors that go into influencing this. I mean, I hate for people to feel like if they weren't needing extra financial support that this wouldn't be the right move. Mm -hmm. It could be totally the right move for you because there's a lot of intrinsic reasons to 
to come closer. And, you know, I like to return back to this article because it's, it's so great, you know, when it talks about like this norm that we think of where the parents live in one house and the adult children live in another and the growing teens have their own apartment or the young adults have their own apartment. That is not, that is not the only way to live. And other cultures are bringing you know, a different view of how families live. So the fact that America is, you know, the demographics are are changing is influencing the fact that there are more multi-generational families. Um, you know, this isn't an unusual thing and, and people are starting to realize that there's a benefit of having that multi-generation experience in one home. Especially, I think, now, I, I don't have children. So of course, I'm an expert in raising kids. You know, all of us who have no kids, we're experts. But it seems to me that having more adults in the household is actually a benefit to helping the kids grow up into, you know, good humans. Yeah. Well, I mean, having the influence of your parents and other, you know, cherished family members um, can be such a benefit to kids. But let me tell you a story here. Okay. I have the most wonderful husband in the whole wide world, but we have teenage kids. And sometimes finding that balance between, you know, marriage and teenagers can be really difficult. So when I know my father's in the home, I can plan away vacations and Vegas feels really close right now. (laughs) It's time. It's time for a trip. (laughs) It's it's time for a trip. And that's flexibility. I would not feel comfortable taking if I didn't have somebody trusted that was there, I mean, cause it's not just your kids, it's your house, it's your pets. It's all these things that require your input to exist. And when there's more than one adult who can shoulder, you know, shoulder that burden, it really does help with some freedom. It's not like us. Um, Les and I are now using trustedhousesitters.com for our pets. When we go away, we did that for our last trip. It's not like you can have somebody watch your kids. No. Well, you can. Trustedkidsitter.com. I mean, mean, there are ways to find people to watch your kids, but it's totally different when it's someone who lives there and knows the routine. And, you know, I mean, there's just a, uh, for me, there's an extra level of security knowing that it's somebody who cares about the genetics in my house. Like they have a vested interest in making sure those grandkids survive and move on in the world. And we'll talk more about that in the fourth episode. So this episode is really more about why. Why is it happening? And I think you brought up a good point about the the fact that we are a melting pot here in the United States. And I, I mean, this is so new. I, I remember when I was a kid, most of my friends and I shared a bedroom with our sibling. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was not unusual. And today, my goodness, if you suggest that somebody share a room, they're gonna there's gonna be a, a huge ordeal there. But yeah. that was normal. And I'm I don't think I'm that old. I mean, I'm I'm in my <laughs> early fifties, but um, it's totally not normal. And I don't know if that's just here in, in California where we are right now, or if it's across the country where kids are not required to share a room, but. When I was um, younger watching, remember the show, The Golden Girls? Yes. I thought that was awesome. I thought, oh, I want to do that when I get older. And my friends were looking at me like I was from Mars. No, I don't want to share a room with anybody. So our culture really changed over and now it's starting to to change back, you know, yeah. to the way that all the other cultures around the world are where we all 
we are we all share living space and we get along. Yeah. Well, I remember so when my um when my husband's family moved to San Diego, they bought a brand new house in a suburb of San Diego, which I think they paid sixty thousand dollars for it. Wow, that must have been a long time ago. <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> what was it nineteen twenty or something? No, I'm no, kidding. No, I think it was in the sixties, <laughs> right? In the uh in the yeah, right around the sixties, I believe. And that was a time of such um such prosperity with, you know, following World War Two, and we had, you know, housing booms. And so it, it was very easy for people to have these private spaces where each of their children had their own room. And that was really the beginning of that. Now that same house is worth probably six, $700,000 in our market. And you can just see, I mean, this is what, 40 years, something right. like that, 50 years. Um, I guess it's more than that now, but you can just see how quickly things have changed um, and how, you know, what was possible then has affected our view on what's normal, what's appropriate, and how the pressures are making it. So, you know, we really have to be more creative, but the beauty of it is that people are embracing it. You know, I mean, I, I kind of woke up one day and then there my dad lives with me. <laughs> like all of a sudden, there he was. <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden. Like the choice just, you know, it just makes so so much sense on so many levels that it just sort of um, happens. And I think that when we're thinking about it, we're thinking, oh, well, it's, you know, these people must be choosing and this, this very, um, I guess, uh, thoughtful process. I think for a lot of people who are who are returning to the multi-generational household, it just sort of happens. Right. <laughs> right. You know what I think is interesting? So while I was reading the article, it really made me think of something. And tell me if, if you agree or if you think I'm crazy or whatever. But the article really kind of downplayed elderly people moving in with their children. It really talked about the 20-somethings moving in with their parents and the 50 and 60-somethings moving in with their children. Um, But what I'm thinking is we haven't really seen the big boom of 80 and 90-year-olds moving in with their Mm 60-year-olds. I don't think that started yet. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I thought that was a really interesting piece. You know, the article says that for people who are 75 years and older, uh, that rate of moving in has stayed basically the same. So from 1995 to, to you know, 2017, it's been 10%. But I think so, it's going to go up. <laughs> because people are living longer. What do you think? I mean, you know, I work in the senior care industry. Right. So I, uh, I work in a home care environment so that people can stay safe, cared for, and comfortable at home. So we definitely see a lot of living arrangements um, where, you know, people move their adult parents into their homes so that they can provide better care. But honestly, Kathy, I mean, the rate hasn't changed. And that may be because people are choosing to stay in their own homes with more support. Hmm. So, you know, the, the motivations to bring your parents into your home may not be as affected as much as we think it is because there are now opportunities for people to remain where they choose. And technologies that we didn't have before. I mean, in the forties, there was no elevator, you know, in the forties, you didn't have a, a camera that can point at a pillbox where the family members can see if their 
parents took their pills, right? Right, right. Well, and in 1940, two-thirds of people 85 or older lived with family members. So that's vastly different than it is now. Right. Yeah, that's true. But how long did people live back then too? I mean, people weren't living to be... I mean, I have... uh, one person in my church that was 111, I think, before she oh passed, or 114. I don't remember the exact age. And now I think the oldest person in our church right now is 99. He still lives, you know, he he still gets around on his own. I don't see a caregiver with him, so I think he's coming to church by himself or someone's picking him up or maybe he's walking because our church is kind of in the middle of a couple of different senior living communities. But yeah, people are living longer, they're healthier, and, and um, you know, I don't know if it's modern technology, taking care of ourselves, or a mixture of both. Right, exactly. Well, technology, I mean, gosh, that's, that's something that really has opened up, you know, a world of possibility for people who need just a little bit of extra help. I mean, now we have fall sensors, and I just installed a, a system for someone the other day that, that uh, alerts us if they don't leave a room for a certain amount of time. So oh, we wow. know that they're... Yeah, no, it's amazing. So home and, care agencies can install these things as well? Well, I I like the technology piece, and I think it's going to give our clients an edge. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the industry will move that way. So I'm probably on the leading edge of it uh, in experimenting with it, with the technology. I mean, I personally feel that giving people tools that reduces you know, the need for home care will keep them independent longer. So we, we try a multi-pronged approach. Um, and I think that, uh, that that might keep, you know, the, the, the 75 plus from having to move in with their family, unless it's something that they want to do. But for the health related reasons, you know, I, I think that there's so much on the horizon to keep people safe, cared for, and comfortable at home and in existence that, that, the numbers um, for the multi-generational households may not bump up as much as we think they are when people start having health-related issues. Hmm, That's my personal opinion. <laughs> well, this show is about our personal opinions. So... <laughs> That's why we're doing the co-hosting, you know. Right. Instead. Right. It's good to have, uh, I think it's good to have opinions. And and listeners and viewers, if you are, if you have a different opinion, go to the show notes and let us know and, and we'll have a conversation there. Or you can go to the Facebook group, uh, Rocky Retirement Community on Facebook. So what do you think that the trends, you, you just said that technology is going to come in. Do you see any other trends that are going to either change that 10% or keep it the same? What what do you think the other trends are going to be? Give us a prediction and then in five years, we'll see if it came true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, I think if you listen to the chatter in the senior community, there's a lot of talk that the traditional model of assisted living is going to face a decline because people are going to have that that technology piece and and if you if you know research shows that most people prefer to stay in their home and so if we can make it safer for them to to remain safe cared for and comfortable at home then they'll probably take up on that so i don't necessarily think that it's going to impact the uh multi-generational numbers as much but I do think that it might impact the assisted living numbers. Oh, which is interesting because they're exploding. I mean, every time I look around, a new assisted living is being built. 
And what I think is cool, and we don't really have time to discuss it, but are those, uh, what I think is really cool are those assisted living communities that have facades like they're in the 50s. Oh, have yeah. you seen those? <laughs> the memory cares is what I should say, oh, not yeah, assisted yeah. living, where I've seen them like they started in Europe somewhere. Uh-huh. And they they had the facades, you know, where it looked oh, like there the were bus and Yeah, the where there were little band. houses mm-hmm. and little cafes all from the 50s. Like it totally looked like it was from the 50s and now they're starting to do that here in the US. Let's go. That sounds great. I know. <laughs> I love that era. <laughs> I wasn't even born in the 50s and I think that's cool. I'm or it wasn't, you know, a lot why you know, I wasn't alive in the 50s. So I was yeah. like, oh, wow, that would be so cool. To, it, it looks like, what was the name of that show? Happy Days. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that the multi-generational move is um, is amazing. I'm glad to see that people are more open to it. You know, I, I hate to think that it is financial pressures that are the main driver of it. Um, for the younger right. people, maybe for the younger Yes, the millennials and the fifty-year-olds, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I can see that. Like, if if I didn't have a job right now, you know, and I'm self-employed and I have been for a long time, I think it would be hard for me to get a job. You know, I'm quite a bit. Oh yeah, I I think there is age discrimination out there. Now, I'm kind of lucky because I've always been in sales, and I think a good salesperson, a good, honest. person with integrity can always get a sales job. If you're if you're good at sales, you'll be able to get a job. But the older you get, the more difficult because I don't know, there is discrimination out there. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I always used to poo poo it. But I'm seeing like friends who have been out of work for a long time. Um, it's tough out there. And And after the last recession of 2008, Certain jobs went away, certain incomes went away, and they never came back. And if you're not, if you're not into tech, if you're not a programmer, you know, or an app developer or a hedge fund manager, you might not be able to get a job where, I mean, I, I have one friend in particular, she was a banker and she was making six figures and I don't think she's working right now, but the last time I saw her working, I think she was making 30,000 a year. Wow. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is not only is the pressure of certain jobs have just disappeared. I mean, have you heard of like a a horse and buggy repairman? Okay. Certain jobs (laughs) just go away, you know, and they're never, never coming back. Certain jobs just are gone. They don't come back. Well-paying jobs or they're overseas now. Right. Right. And so if you're in that 45 to 60 and you're not an executive, you're not a CEO, it, there can be a lot of pressure because yeah. employers think, oh, well, this person, they're not ne- maybe necessarily overtly discriminating, thinking, oh, this person over here has more energy. Right, right. You know, and it may or may not be true. People middle age have more experience, but then right. again, the world is expanding so fast. How many people yeah. do you know that are 60, which is super young, that say, oh, I don't do email? <laughs> right. Actually, not that many. I, I, I'm i really surprised. Like that's caught on and because, and, you know, we work with a bunch of um, different types of people and we find that even our even our older uh, employees are 75, are, 80. They're doing email. Yeah, they're but, stepping up. But some <laughs> people, people don't like like Les has a cousin. 
same age as my husband, doesn't do email. His wife does it for him. Oh, okay. So there are still some people stuck in that. Right. Oh, I, I don't do that. So I have a question for you, Kathy. Sure. About we, have a cu- we have a couple of minutes left. Okay. Um, so we talked about, you know, 1940 being kind of a totally different era for people 85 or older who are living with their family members. And after, you know, the creation of Social Security and Medicare, which right. I know a lot about, that that created a more financial financially stable environment for older people. So it did decrease that multi-generational living. How do you think the changes in those programs are going to affect the multi-generational picture for the future? Well, now I'm talking as myself. I'm not representing any company. I'm not giving financial advice. But personally, I believe that the Social Security system can't handle the promises that it's made. Okay. And if you take a look at your statement, your social security statement, I looked at one the other day and it said something to the effect of, I I don't remember the exact words, but we don't have enough money to pay you this. We have enough money to pay you 79% of this. You're kidding. It actually said something. Is it right on there on the, (gasps) on the second page? And, and I don't think that a lot of younger people, I mean, they say, everybody says, well, I don't think social security is going to be there. But we all do think that because if we didn't think that, we would be saving more on our right, own. Right. Yeah. No, when you said that, that my my heart actually just dropped because that's the first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> and pull I'm a up younger your so- Pull up your social security <laughs> statement. And it's I believe it's on the back page. I actually saved mine from several years ago because it said 77%. And then for a few years, social security took that statement off. And so I had saved mine and I uh, blocked out my numbers and all that and I showed it to people. But the other day I saw a new one and it said it, I think it was on the last page and it said 79%. So I do think that that is going to put a lot of pressure um, on families because people are not saving. We as Americans live for today. Right. You know, I go down my neighborhood and I see everybody's, I know that there are people in my neighborhood that cannot afford to live here and that that they're two weeks away from bankruptcy. You know, it, it just seems that, that that's how it is. They have these fifty, seventy-five thousand, hundred thousand dollar cars, which to me makes my heart stop because to me, you know, I remember when you could buy a house for that. And I'm like, whoa, yeah. a car for that. I mean, that that's just crazy. Um, and then they buy them every five years or so. Right. So I do think now, as far as right now, yes, Medicare is wonderful. I hear a lot of people complaining about the cost of Medicare, but in San Diego, a 65-year-old can get a creme de la creme plan, plan F for $144 a month. Oh, and wow. that covers everything plus their part B of 134. I personally pay more than that. And I have co-pays, deductibles, co-insurance that people on Medicare don't have. So as far as Medicare goes, I don't know what's going to happen to Medicare, okay? I I hope that it continues. I do believe that Medicare is going towards managed care. I think that by the time I retire, I probably won't have a choice for Medicare Mm. supplement. I'll probably be forced into a managed Medicare Advantage plan, Mm. whatever it looks like 15 years from now or 
however long it is before. But now, as far as Social Security, though, I am surprised that they have not made Social Security retirement age 78 or 80. Right. I mean, if you follow how it started back back way back when, people died. In the 40s. <laughs> right, right. It all started, right? So people didn't live that long. They died, and the average age was like 67. And so they made it 65, and and now the the social security age for for younger people is 67, right? Yeah. 67. Uh, if you follow the life expectancy it should be 80, 85, you know. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't know what's going to happen because I I don't know too many I know some people who are working past age 75, but not a lot. Right. Usually the people that I see working that are in their 80s are self-employed. Yeah. You know, and they just can't stop working, which is one of the things we talk about on the Rocky Retirement Show. <laughs> How do you stop working? <laughs> so anyway, that's my prediction. I think that there are going to be some financial hardships for you and me down the road. Yeah. I think if you're already in your 60s, you're probably fine. I don't think the government's going to take away any of your benefits. In fact, I think that if you're 55... You, you're probably okay too, but then I, you know, I, I can't see into the future. I don't have a crystal ball, but that's my personal opinion. Thanks yeah. for asking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just thought it was really interesting because the article brought it up that that was what, you know, that those programs were what gave us, I guess, a, a re, not a reprieve. That's not the right word because I think multi generational households the are ability, amazing. The ability, the ability to choose. Right. If those go away, that steady ten percent. It's going to rise. Of yeah, it, that I think that is going to have an impact on that multi generational rate um, with the eighty five plus. Yeah. Now, just to be clear, I don't think those programs are going to go away, but I think they will change significantly, just because of economics. So, on that note, listeners, you'll have to tune in to the next episode. Where what are we talking about on the next episode, Jana? Let's see. It looks like uh, we get to talk about the benefits of living in a multi-generational oh, family. Oh, right. Which... And you you touched on that a little bit. So we'll talk about that in the next episode. And listener, we're so glad you joined us. And we'll see you next week on The Rock Your Retirement Show. Bye. Bye. Oh, wait, I wanted to thank you again for listening to the Rocky Retirement Show. If you're a new listener, a good place to start is episode 116. This explains the six pillars of retirement lifestyle and our general philosophy. Episodes 1 through 236 can be thought of as an encyclopedia. These are topics that may or may not be interesting to you. You can listen to the ones that you're interested in and forget the rest until the issue becomes an issue for you. And that's okay. I actually don't recommend starting with episode one and working through until the most recent. That's actually not how the show was designed. Of course, if you want to do that so you can see how the show changed over time, you're welcome to. Now, starting in August... Actually, August 31st of 2020, we changed the format of the show. The monthly episodes starting with 237 
follow a real retiree from her pre-announcement through her first year of retirement. There might be bonus episodes, but we're committed to monthly. If you've enjoyed any of our past shows or the show that you've just listened to and you want to support us, you can do so in any of the four ways. One, share this episode with a friend or family member who needs to hear it. This is the most important way that people find us. Since our audience is typically older, we grow by having our listeners share our episodes with others. Two, subscribe to or follow the show using whatever podcast catcher you're listening on right now. Now, if you're listening on your computer, you can listen on your smartphone by going to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, iHeartRadio, Spotify. I mean, I believe on all of them. If you can't find us on the podcast catcher that you'd like to use, send us a note on the website at rockyourretirement.com and we'll make sure that we get on your favorite podcast app. But basically, what you do is you download the app and then you search for the show and when you find it, you'll hit subscribe. Make sure it's the Rock Your Retirement Show and that you hear my voice when you listen. Um, Actually, there were some episodes where Henry Shapiro was a guest. Uh, we, We actually downloaded some of his episodes. So if you hear him, it's probably still the the same show. There were maybe 34 or 35 episodes back in the beginning that we hosted on our show uh, when he decided to leave podcasting. Number three, how you can support us is by leaving a review. Whatever podcast app you're listening to normally has the option of leaving a review, either a written review saying how great the show is or just with stars. Five stars is typically the best. And of course, we're shooting for those five-star reviews. And if you tell us why you like the show, what you liked about it, it's actually easier for other people to understand what the show's about. A lot of people, when they find our show, they think it's about money. And of course, by now, you know that it's not. Number four, if you'd like to support us financially, of course, we're always appreciative of that. Just go to rockyourretirement.com slash support, and it will take you to our page where you can support us financially. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Rock Your Retirement. Bye.